from the frozen tundra of Northern Virginia. It's the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for December 13th, 2017. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. This might be the last podcast of the year. The question is whether I'll be able to get any of the remaining three or four or 17 or however many candidates there are in the U.S. soccer presidential race uh, to come onto this show for interviews. I've extended requests to everybody. All are welcome. Please come in and talk to me. That's fine. I may even talk with people who didn't make it if they really want to do that. This is... Uh, there, there are two topics for this show. I'm going to say that at the outset here at the 15 minute mark, and I am going to limit myself, <laughs> keep an eye on the time. On the 15 minute mark, I'm going to switch over and talk about the Soccer Parenting Summit, which was held over this past weekend, hosted by friend of the show, Sky Eddie Bruce, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago and is doing a remarkable job to educate and empower parents to have a educated voice. Uh, in soccer, as opposed to simply just yelling from the sideline, she wants us to know our stuff and then have the ability to go forth and challenge what our coaches are doing. And she covered a lot of great topics, had 20, 21 speakers. I've listened to about half of them. Um, I'll get to the rest, but we'll talk about that in the second half of the program. Right now, it's all about the great election. And we're sitting here on a Wednesday. It's much like the Virginia General Assembly race we just had. If you followed the elections in November, you'll remember that uh, it was a a big day for Virginia uh, Democrats because they swept the main state offices. The question is the General Assembly, which might be half Democrats when all is said and done. We still don't know because there's one race that's something like 100 people. There's one race where there was some question about people moving from one district to another. It's still up in the air several weeks later. So this is just one of those post-election things you might remember from 2000 when everybody went to bed and we didn't know if it was going to be Gore or Bush. We didn't know for some time. And even in 2004, there was still some doubt about whether Bush was going to win. There was still a mathematical chance for John Kerry the next morning. This is the morning after the deadline for filing your nominations, your application and nomination to run for U.S. soccer president. It should be a simple process. You file it, and then you have your three nominations from any of the 100-plus organizations and three people who can nominate you. You'd think that would be simple. Uh, It's not, for a variety of reasons, and I've spelled them out in the blog already. Uh, There was a post last night that I did, and Steve Gans, who has been on this program, filed a letter complaining about a lot of the things that had gone on in the election and urging independent oversight of the election itself. Uh, He will get that. I, I don't know if that was already in the works or if it was something they promised him. Probably already in the works, honestly. Uh, I know that may sound like I'm being too generous to U.S. soccer, but they did say in this letter that they are contacting a firm to run this. Also, a a point, if you heard me on uh, Jason Davis's show this morning, I didn't quite finish up this point because we were getting rushed for time. But 
this is an important distinction. It sounds really boring. They're changing from the nominating and governance committee to the credential committee at this phase in the process. I know. Okay, wake up. Here's why that's important. Because the nominating and governance committee includes a guy by the name of Sunil Gulati, who happens to be the now outgoing president, who the critics say is too close to Major League Soccer, his former employer, and to Soccer United Marketing, the marketing committee, the, the marketing company that Major League Soccer set up. And the chairman of that committee is Don Garber, the president of Major League Soccer, who started Soccer United Marketing. And you could say that some of the things they've done favored Kathy Carter, who works for Soccer United Marketing, is on leave from Soccer United Marketing after her snap decision to run, which was, we're told, coincidentally timed to just after Sunil Gulati announcing he would not. The optics are very, very bad on this. And I think whether or not there was a nefarious purpose of this or not, or whether it, maybe it was all coincidence, it just goes to show that these people don't understand the level of concern about this relationship between U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer and Soccer United Marketing. Five years ago, it was just a fringe. And as I said on Jason's show this morning, there are people who think that Soccer United Marketing was created by NFL executives to keep down soccer in this country. Well, Soccer United Marketing was formed when the alternative was to let Major League Soccer fold. It was designed to save U.S. soccer and had every... It, you can't really go back to 2002 and fault their intentions for starting Soccer United Marketing. You can raise questions about the business practices since then, particularly in the last few years, particularly when it comes to this election. It just doesn't look right. I mean, there, there are questions about whether or not Soccer United Marketing has been you know, unfairly given the deals that it has. And you know, there's probably nothing unethical going on, but we can't... The, I, to avoid conflict of interest, you have to avoid the appearance of conflict of interest. That's why journalists, journalists can't put campaign stickers on their cars, usually. Not journalists for traditional newspapers, anyway. We've never put a yard sign out for a presidential candidate or a gubernatorial candidate. The only time we've ever had a yard sign in our household was a school board race, because that was something where... Uh, in my household, neither of our jobs would be in any sort of conflict with that. We don't put signs out for for campaigns. We just don't. That's that's how you have to be. You have to make sure everything is above board and everyone can see that's above board. And they're not doing that right now. And I think that's going to come back to haunt them. I think that Kathy Carter probably didn't get the support that she thought she would have, the support that Don Garber thought she'd have, the support that Sunil Gulati thought she'd have. It, it may have looked in their minds like this is going to be an orderly transition. Uh, here comes, again, regardless of the timeline, regardless of when Kathy Carter first thought about running, it may have looked like an orderly transition to them. Okay, Gulati's going to leave. Kathy Carter's going to come in. It's not going to be an easy road for Kathy Carter. 
And she's invited on this podcast, just as Carlos Cordero is, just as Paul Calagiri is, just as Hope Solo is. We don't know yet if all of those people got the nominations. Calagiri implied that he did in a tweet yesterday. Carter and Cordero haven't said anything. It's difficult to imagine that they did not. I mean, there's, there's certainly still enough of an establishment left that you'd think they'd be able to get three nominations out of a pool of 100, 110 or so. At least enough to run. I don't think enough to win, but certainly enough to run. And the so the, the big question is Hope Solo. Um, because there's been some miscommunication. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it at that. We we'll see what happens with Hope. Uh, she's you can't count her out right now. She would certainly be interesting, and we'll get into that if she becomes uh, a full-fledged candidate. I understand U.S. Soccer not wanting to officially announce because they they are they they do want to do the background checks too, and they've been doing background checks on people essentially as they've announced. So hope would have hope came in very late. Hope came in was it just Monday or so, just a few days ago. So. They haven't done her background check yet, probably. And they need to check out all the nominations and verify them and so forth. And so if they got an avalanche of paperwork last night, well, they need to sort through it. And yeah, that'll that'll take a few days. And there's nothing nothing inherently wrong with that. So we, we're either going to have a Magnificent Seven or an Elite Eight. Now, I have no idea how this is going to play out. I, 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 you can tell certain things. The adult soccer associations seem to be leaning a bit toward Eric Winalda. And part of it is that, that those are the organizations where you're going to have people who respond to the promotion relegation message. In a way, it's silly because it doesn't mean that you know, their clubs suddenly become viable contenders to become major league soccer, you know, first division clubs, just because we open up a pyramid. That doesn't mean that a, the Milwaukee Bavarians or the Kingston Stockade, Dennis Crowley's club, have a realistic chance of making the first division. You could say, well, it opens up the theoretical chance that they can go first division. Mm, well, not much of one. It might open the theoretical chance they could go third division. And yeah, look, that might be exciting. Maybe so. I it, In my promotion relegation plans, I think there needs to be a divide between pro and amateur because I think once you go pro, you should stay pro because we don't want to lose that youth academy. That has been the major change in my promotion relegation thinking over the last three or four months as I've been digging into some of these things is that you don't want to relegate a club out of the professional ranks to an amateur league if they have an academy that's functioning because that'll hurt youth development. And this is a big country. So if you have you know the only club for 100 miles around with an academy attached to it and then it drops from Division three to Division four and can't afford the academy anymore, then we've lost something. We've lost something nationally. I mean, it's happening in England, and England's a significantly smaller country. You see Torquay United, one of the great yo-yo clubs in the nether reaches, you know, fourth tier, fifth tier 
bouncing back and forth between pro and the fifth tier, which is kind of semi-pro-ish. Um, years ago, it was considered amateur. Now, some of those clubs are actually pro. But Torquay United has been has had its academy up and down and out and in and back. And that hurts England because Torquay isn't really close to a lot of things. It's not like in London, if you go from 10 clubs to nine, you still have a lot of options to, to play at a professional academy. In Torquay, that academy closes. Where are you going to go? Bournemouth? South? It's, that's tricky. The U.S. should set things up to avoid things like that. We should be looking to improve on the way Europe does things. We shouldn't be looking to copy it. We need to improve on it. We need to take what works there and then turn away what doesn't. I wonder how many of these candidates get that. I don't know. It's an intelligent group of people. I think it's an honorable group of people, and I've certainly enjoyed the conversations we've had on this show. I hope you've turned tuned in for those. A couple of them have very been pop, have been very popular. Some of them have been less popular. It's a good group of people, and I hope they all speak out. I actually said on Twitter today to Paul LaPointe, who is the one candidate who seems quite obviously to not have the nominations because he is talking about uh, not backing down, and it's in the lawyer's hands now and so forth, whereas if he had the nominations, I think at this point he would say he had the nominations. But his is an interesting voice, and I I, I hope that he keeps talking. I hope the conversations continue regardless of what happens, because we do need to rethink some things. I think my goal, my New Year's resolution, is going to be to put the focus back on youth soccer, because I think that's the important part of all of this. Because people say, oh, you fix the pro ranks, you fix the youth ranks. No. No, no, no. It's not going to work that way. You, you suddenly make everything promotion relegation in the pros, and then every parent in America is going to be uh, telling their kids or, you know, putting their kids in line for a shot at playing, you know, third division professional soccer or having a 10% chance of that when they have a 50% chance of going to college. No, that's not going to change. You need to adapt to that. And Hopefully over the next two months, we'll get the candidates to talk more about things like that. And, and Steve Gann just talked about a youth summit. I think it's a great idea. Sky Eddie Bruce had her own summit. And we'll talk about that in the next segment. And please do stay tuned because I, I, I think this was really interesting. There were some sessions I wasn't that interested in. Some really were. There's something for everybody there. Highly recommended. We're going to talk about that next. So we're back talking about the Soccer Parenting Summit that Sky Eddie Bruce hosted this weekend. It, it's a lot to take in. If you, It's not the sort of thing you want to binge watch. It's very... And it not because there's anything wrong with any of it. It's just because there is so much to take in. It's very difficult to see it all at one time. But because I am nerdy about these things and geeky about these things, that is what I've tried to do. Uh, I've gone through about half of it. Um, and again, it's not because there's anything wrong with this, because 
there's only so much time I have, and it's 20-some hours of programming. So what we have, what I've been through so far, I've, I've seen oh, probably half the sessions or so, and I'm going to go back and listen to more. But let's take a look at it in just a couple of topics, and I'm going to have a, a blog post about some of this too. Um, one is joy. That was a common theme. A lot of the people in, in the summit talked about joy, especially Julie Foudy, who kicked off the summit. Um, or she was the first guest on the opening night, Friday night. And, of course, she's a Hall of Fame player. She's not a coach. Uh, she is, as far as I know. Um, and she's actually, well, she's still a soccer analyst, but she's also an, an all-around journalist at uh, ESPN. You might see her on... A lot of other things have nothing to do with soccer. Uh, she's got quite a career going on, and she runs her leadership academy and so forth. But she's also a soccer parent. And she looks at it and thinks that a lot of the joy is missing. And so in a lot of the, the sessions that followed after that, Sky Eddie Bruce said, hey, you know, this started with Julie Foudy asking where the joy went. And there's another session uh, with a sports scientist from George Washington University that was all about fun and what that really means so and that has that's the sort of thing that doesn't seem controversial until you get out on twitter and you have a lot of people on twitter who will say oh it's not supposed to be fun this is supposed to be about you know fighting your way out of poverty and becoming a star athlete and so forth well look at some level it has to be fun right i mean why would you do it why why would you do something else why wh why would you do soccer instead of something else if it weren't fun uh, you know why would you go for a 0.01% chance of making more money as a soccer player than you would make in any other field you know running a food truck or um, going and selling insurance or being a lawyer or whatever else you can do. I mean, honestly, if you want to fight your way out of poverty, don't go to a soccer program. Go to a STEM program. You know, learn to code. That's where the jobs are. That's where the jobs are going to be. Everything else is going to be automated. My job is probably going to be automated. You'll probably hear me replaced by a robot in a couple of years, which is fine. Um, so you need to be in it for the fun. And there's some people, including one of... Um, Skydy Bruce's guest, uh, Gary Kleeman, who has often accused the U.S. of having a recreational mentality. Well, I don't think having fun is recreational. Another somewhat controversial topic here, and again, it it's one of those things where the academics say one thing, and the so-called soccer people might say something else. And that is playing multiple sports. That is not specializing until you get into your high school years. Most people agree with that, and most of the academic research I've seen agrees with that. And they all show that elite athletes tend to play multiple sports. And there's another component to it that was brought up a couple of times, and it's about learning to move just learning basic movement, and I've heard this before at NCAA conventions and so forth, and we're failing to teach that. And I, I've, I've seen a couple of kids, <laughs> I have a couple of kids, and you see PE classes, and 
they don't get a lot of time to go over that stuff. I'm hoping to have someone on the podcast pretty soon who is both a uh, distinguished soccer coach and a PE teacher, hoping to talk with her about those issues. But the the interesting one here, and perhaps the one that will be most difficult to dismiss from the the Twitter fringe, the, the people who would say don't do anything but kick a soccer ball from age two onward, was Jay Demerit who has a, a terrific story, and, and Sky had, her, had him in the summit because he has such a terrific story. It's made into a movie, uh, and it's he was a pretty obscure soccer player, just a, a regular guy from college, didn't go into MLS, uh, you know, wasn't considered a big prospect, but went to England and worked his way individually up the pyramid and wound up in the Premier League and wound up on the national team and played very, very well. One reason that he was a late bloomer, and he tells the story very well, is that he switched from forward to defense, um, I think in his college years. The reason he was able to make that switch, he gives a lot of credit to the fact that he played basketball. And so there was a different mindset. There was something that he did in basketball that he didn't really do in soccer. Uh, It was ball hawking, basically. It was playing learning to defend, learning to take on that pressure. It, some of it was physical, some of it was mindset. And look, there's, I, I think this is one of those areas where maybe we're overcorrecting. You know, the USA has typically had more athleticism than skill. I mean, uh, going way back, the 1930 World Cup semifinalists were called shot putters. And yes, I said 1930 World Cup semifinalists. In case you didn't know, the U.S. men were semifinalists in the very first World Cup. Now, there were only, I think, 13 countries playing in it, but still, that was pretty impressive, right? And they were derided as, you know, just a bunch of big dudes who uh, used their brawn to win. Uh, that's probably unfair. I've never seen videotape of it, so I can't really judge. And then also when the U.S. women's national team started, Anson Dorrance, who uh, coached them in their first World Cup in 1991, and, of course, has been at North Carolina for, oh, my goodness, close to four decades now, really built his program on athleticism and determination. If you read the book on him, The Man Watching, he would go see people who would practically get in fights in, in soccer games and say, okay, that's the, that's the woman we want on the team. Now, he's brought in some very skilled players. I mean, this is someone who's – the North Carolina program has had Crystal Dunn, who has tremendous skill and speed. Uh, Tobin Heath, who is one of the most technically gifted players we've ever seen, and Yael Averbush, who has been on this show and was on the summit uh, this past weekend. I think we're overcorrecting a bit. I think we've been uh, thinking that soccer is not an athletic sport, and people say, "Oh, well, what about you know Xavi and Iniesta? They'd be totally lost in the U.S. system." I I, I don't buy that, and you can say Xavi and Iniesta, well, they're not great athletes. Well, compared to what? Compared to whom? I mean, compared to uh, great distance runners? Compared to, me- you know, can they run as well as Meb Kafliji? Okay, probably not. Are they as fast as Usain Bolt in a sprint? No. Nobody is, except Justin Gatlin, and you don't want him on your soccer team, I don't think. I don't think he has any soccer background. But are they more athletic than 99.5% of the people in the general population? I'd say so. And they wouldn't be effective if they weren't. You think th- these are people who've never wor- never worked on conditioning, and they don't watch their diet, 
No, of course they do. You, know, you can't be overweight like me and be an offensive soccer player. I mean, I, I don't have the skill either, but you certainly, you're not going to see soccer players that look like me. I'll put it that way. You know, you see these guys, they're fit. They really are. And so, and they have great body control. Messi has outstanding body control. And the best play I've ever seen Messi make, well, I can't say the best, but one that was instructive. He was in the middle of the field, passed out to the wing, and made a run up the middle. There was a defender practically falling on top of him, trying to stop him from making his run through the center because this defender knew what was going to happen. The ball was going to come back to Messi, and Messi was going to score. The defender was doing everything legal and perhaps otherwise to halt Messi's progress, and Messi had the strength and the body control to fight through it and scored. If Messi didn't have the strength or the body control, he wouldn't have done that. You, you want a counterpoint to that? Freddie Adu had a ton of skill, but he, he just got knocked off the ball all the time by bigger, older players. You know, if you caught up to Freddie, you know, if, if Freddie didn't make some wonderful trick and elude you, then you could take the ball from him. And that's, you know, Freddie Adu's case, I'm sure, is very complicated, and there's probably some mental and developmental issues that uh, we'll never get to the bottom of, but I think one of the factors was that he just wasn't the athlete that Messi is. So, and John O'Sullivan put it best in here when he was talking about this in terms of youth development, which is that um, we're essentially building an athletic foundation on sand, and it can very easily crumble. The other big issue, it, it, we sort of got into, well, I'd say the two big buzzwords here. Uh, let's take the first one, winning versus development which you can also reframe as player versus team. Kevin Payne, another guest who's been on here. I promise there were guests that Sky had that I did not. Sky talked with uh, someone about ACL prevention or ACL injuries, talked with someone about college recruiting. I haven't gotten to that yet. I will as part of research for the guide that I'm writing. Uh, but Kevin Payne from U.S. Club Soccer and, of course, the former D.C. United executive guy who was with D.C. United in the glory years, uh, covered a wide range of topics, and they did talk about the Players First initiative, and that will be morphing into a program that certifies clubs. And Kevin's very careful to say that we're not telling people not to win as a team. Certainly there's some merit to that. And he says, you know, look, Barcelona's academy teams are always playing to win, and I can vouch for that. I watched... Uh, um, it's funny, when I was in Spain, you couldn't see any La Liga games because we just didn't have the right paid TV package. It's funny how in other countries you you can't see soccer like we do in this country. We sort of take it for granted. But we got Barca TV, and so we saw an academy game. And when they finally took the lead against stubborn defense with uh, what, you might, what might not have been a prototypical Barcelona goal, it was a cross and a header, to just sort of put it over the defense for a change. And they scored and they celebrated. And they pulled the game out. I believe they won 2-1. to one. And, uh, yeah, they were clearly trying to win that game. They, they weren't just sitting there, you know, working on their short passing game regardless of the circumstances. 
So I get that. And uh, Sky mentioned that her daughter plays with more intensity for her high school team than she does in the ECNL, uh, which is a U.S. club soccer program, by the way. So I do think this is one of those things where we might be overcorrecting a bit, um, where, uh, you know, we're, first of all, U.S. club soccer, I think, is sending mixed messages here. They preach players first, then they set up their own cl- their own leads and their own state cup competitions. And that doesn't make much sense to me. It seems like if if developing the player was most important, why would you not expose them to a general league? And why would you make them travel to go play in something else? And why would you why would you put them in this silo apart from other players? That doesn't make any sense to me. But in terms of winning versus development, yeah, we still have mostly coaches, I would argue, not just play not necessarily parents, but coaches who have you kind of drop the ball on this, and I've seen in U9 games before they put the build-out line, and uh, you know goal kicks were always the most dangerous thing before they put the build-out line in because uh, you'd have a goalkeeper who couldn't quite get the ball with enough zip on it to a uh, to a defender, and someone could pounce in and and steal it. And when things start, when one team has momentum, it's pretty easy to keep there and keep stealing the goal kick. And I've seen games where Oh, 10, 15, 20 goal difference because one team is just pressing and stealing the goal kick all the time. Well, if you were a coach who was worried about development, you'd tell your players to get back. Well, there are plenty of coaches who don't do that. Actually saw one case where the parents were telling their kids to get back and the coach wasn't. So the parents are ahead of the game there. So yeah, there are certainly instances where you need to focus on development and you need to play players in different positions. You need to play players. Um, you, you don't want to have specialist goalkeepers that you know you ate. <laughs> you want to have because goalkeepers need to develop foot skills anyway. But I think it's important, you know, we to to play games where winning matters, and that's one of the critiques people have had of the U.S. men's soccer team not qualifying for the World Cup is saying, "Oh, well, they're not used to playing where it matters," and that's valid. You know, they've been in a lot of situations where winning isn't what matters, and perhaps that takes a toll after a while. I've heard that said about Bradenton, the old U-17 program. I've heard it said uh, heard it said elsewhere. So the last issue we'll get to, uh, pay to play. And it's it's difficult because Tony DeChico, or I'm sorry, Anthony DeChico, son of uh, Tony DeChico, uh, used to work for AstroTurf, and he talked about artificial turf, and I hope people don't listen to him and sort of write off what he has to say because he worked for a company in the business. Uh, he's uh, He obviously knows this stuff, and he is talking about the next generation, and we do probably want to start getting rid of crumb rubber fields. Uh, crumb rubber, you know, the little pellets that you know, track in everywhere. They get stuck in your clothes and in your car and in your house. Uh, they're all over the place. Uh, it's also a surface that gets unbearably hot if it's if the sun's beating down on it in summer and it's 90 degrees and so forth. I mean, if it's 90 degrees outside, it might be 100 and who knows uh, on that field. Uh, it's awful. Um, there are some developments coming in. Uh, what... Anthony said here is he 
dismiss the notion that's been brought up. For, I mean, he was empathetic to it, but but says, look, there's no causal link here between crumb rubber and cancer, which was a big issue brought up over in the last two years or so. Uh, and yeah, the, the scientific evidence right there really isn't there. I, I still tell my kids, wash your hands, quit making little piles of the stuff, and don't eat the stuff. <laughs> and that that just seems reasonable to me. Of course, you could say that on a grass field too. You could say, hey, you know, don't you know, don't go chewing the grass. You don't know who's poop there. So, you know, no, generally, don't eat ground would be a good rule of thumb to live by if you want to be healthy. Uh, but crumb rubber, in addition to getting hot, also not a great shock absorber. So if you want to have a really nice feel, what you do is you get this organic infill that's kind of new. And you put a shock pad underneath it. And that's great. Sounds very promising. It'll cost you. It'll cost your club. It'll cost your county. And the costs will be passed on. So that's one of those examples where you say, well, let's get rid of pay to play. Okay, well, then who's going to pay for this field? Well, you could practice on dirt. You can pra- and actually, you can practice on tennis courts. You know, that's the other idea. But we eventually, we still want fields to play on. And as Anthony put it, artificial turf is a necessary evil so that we can spend more time with our teams because grass tears up. Look, I had one grass field where I went out for the first practice of the season in the fall and saw that it really hadn't been watered over the course of the summer. And I thought this is going to be dirt in two weeks. And sure enough, it was dirt with a few grass patches. And then a few weeks later, they came out and aerated the field. So it was like playing on gravel on top of dirt. That's far worse than playing on artificial turf. That was terrible. We couldn't do anything. I mean, you... You, pa- you, ever, you ever pass a soccer ball on gravel? Good luck with that. So that's an issue, and so is the fact that y- you do need to pay coaches. So th- we talked a bit about pay-to-play in this summit, or I say we, I wasn't participating, but uh, there were conversations about it. I think that the issue that we've addressed, that, that, w- that was addressed that came up that I think made sense and Sky Eddie Bruce brought it up with Kevin Payne was look we can't eliminate pay to play but can we at least pay less and part of that is travel now again if I would bring up the point that the fact that we have all these different leagues and therefore people are traveling to play someone 200 miles away instead of 20 that's an issue uh, but Kevin brought up a legitimate point which is that uh, parents are looking to have, you know, there's an unspoken contract, he says, in which a coach will try to get a player into Duke. It's funny that he picked Duke because that's, of course, my alma mater. Uh, well, the women just had an awesome season. The men finally made it back into the tournament. So, he's, But then he said maybe not just Duke, but and maybe not even Division One. But sometimes and what I've heard from parents is that it's not even about the scholarship. Sometimes it's just getting into the school that you can get into a good Division three school uh, if you're a soccer player. And, yeah, that's true. I mean, when you have kids in high school like I do now and you start looking at the little scattergrams that show you, you know, test scores and GPA and who got in, you can spot the athletes. I mean, not all of them, but you can certainly spot people who got in for some reason other than their test scores. I mean, they weren't ridiculously off the charts, but they were considerably lower than other people 
who applied and didn't get in. You know, if you're a star soccer player, if they think you can make the varsity, you've got a leg up on admission. And so parents think that if they go to a lot of tournaments, they'll get in front of a lot of college coaches. Uh, here's, and this will be the last thought for the day. Um, we've got to turn that around. We've got to get to where it's the coaches and the scouts who are traveling and not the players. And the, the great example here, in 1980, everyone knew the best high school football player in the country was a kid from a tiny school in Georgia named Herschel Walker. And they were right. He went to Georgia and had an immediate impact, played three seasons, and was uh, still regarded as perhaps the best running back ever to play the college football game. They knew about Herschel when there was no internet. He wasn't posting highlight videos to the huddle and things like that. There, we didn't have such a sophisticated scouting network. And this is something, you know, there's not really travel football. I mean, I guess in some places there, there might be now. But they found him at his little high school. Everyone knew how good this guy was in 1980. So can we do that in 2018? In U.S. soccer? I think it's worth a shot. Paul Calagiri seems to think so. That's actually one of the more interesting thoughts in the presidential race is that he thinks that college and high school coaches uh, could be part of a giant network of scouts. Yeah, we'll see. So that brings us to the conclusion of what is probably, again, the last Ranting Soccer Dad of 2017. Uh, if I get a presidential candidate who wants to come on, and again, uh, Mr. Calajuri, Ms. Carter, Ms. Solo, and Mr. Cordero, uh, the four of you are out there. Open invitation. Uh, you should have my contact info by now. I've reached out to all of you. If you want to come on the show, come on the show, and we'll do it even over the holidays if you want. Uh, if not, I will talk to them in the new year. And... I will continue blogging at rantingsoccerdad.com. Go back. if Hey, if you want, if you missed the podcast, go check it out. There's some good ones in the archives now. This is number 23. It's been a good start to this. I'm really enjoying it. Love all the feedback. Thanks very much for listening and subscribing. And I will talk to you next year.